Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. I've got big magazine stories coming soon from reporting trips to Leeds United and interviewing migrant workers in Qatar. So subscribe now and help me continue doing cool stuff like this. That's grantwall.com. We've got Chris Whittingham here to preview the start of the Premier League season. How are you, Chris? I have gone through a whole bunch of transfers. I learned where some players are this morning. I am ready to go. I'm genuinely fired up for the start of the Premier League season. I drafted a fantasy Premier League team yesterday. I'm, I'm all over this. I'm, I'm fired up and ready to go. I actually got invited into a sort of celebrity Premier League fantasy uh, league, which I don't usually do fantasy, but... I may do it, I think. It might be fun. Do you think I'll stick with it, or will I just be that guy who like sets his <laughs> roster like on, on week I, one I will, and has the same one in like week three? If it's a celebrity league, I can't allow this to happen. If you want, we can jointly manage this celebrity Premier uh, fantasy Premier League team because uh, I am very much into my fantasy Premier League, so uh, I, I can help if need be. I'm just really excited about it. Um, you got Crystal Palace Arsenal coming on Friday and then a full slate of games over the weekend. I can't believe it's starting already. It's the first week of August. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I was in England last week, visited Leeds United, got a real feel on the ground for what's happening over there. And uh, I do love the culture of the Premier League too. And I, I realized after this trip, I need to go to England more. You know, I've only been once in the last year or two and it's it's just it's really cool when you're on the ground and you realize that some of these teams that are in the Premier League which is the biggest domestic league in the world are still in sort of not huge population centers in in England does that make sense yeah no i've i've been to some of these places i've been to to southampton uh which was really cool and you go all over the country and you realize that these clubs, despite the fact that they are massive, mega, global brands, are still of a community. And that you walk through a stadium, you walk to a stadium, it's not like in most American stadium situations where they basically found a parking lot in the middle of a plot of land that could fit a stadium, and they put it there. Most of these stadiums are within a community. And so you're walking through the city streets and up pops a stadium. And so it's still really cool that when you walk through the areas around Premier League grounds, that it still has a local feel to it, even though it's being beamed all over the world. And there are millions of people in the United States that are watching and millions of people in Africa are watching and millions of people all over the world watch this sport. But it's still, at the end, a local product that it's all dependent on those local fans showing up and creating the atmosphere that we love to watch. It's really fascinating because I actually was walking around the city of Sheffield, which we were at the Sheffield United Stadium, Bramall Lane, which is not in the Premier League at this point, obviously. But, you know, there's other teams in the Premier League right now that are that size. And yeah, it was just a a very sort of old-fashioned feel to, to walking around this town in, in this working-class area of Sheffield. So I would highly encourage uh, listeners, if you love the Premier League, you love watching it on TV, it's a great product, obviously, go if you can at some point. I know it's not cheap always, but it's, uh, it's a real experience to, to travel around England and, and go to games there, and, and I'm looking forward to getting back soon. And we've got 10 questions that we've put together that we're going to answer about the Premier League season ahead. You came up with five. I came up with five. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. 10 questions. Here we go. 
Number one, can anyone other than Man City or Liverpool win the league? What do you think, Chris? Um, no, no. I, I, I think, I think this is a two-team race. Um, I think it would have to take a real surprise. So you look at the other candidates, right? It would be Tottenham Hotspur, Arsenal, Manchester United. Although I don't even, I, I, I don't think you can include them in that group. Just because they're in the big six doesn't mean that you include them in this conversation. Um. Yeah, I just don't, and and I, I don't think I mentioned Chelsea. I just think those teams are too much in a state of transition to really give this a go. Um, Chelsea certainly have the pedigree of having recently won the Champions League. I still think they have to do a little bit more business, particularly at center back, to have any kind of confidence uh, in, in them going forward. And also, what does their attack look like? Are they going to regularly create chances and score goals? Because they have not proven that. They got hammered in preseason by Arsenal. I think Arsenal had a very good preseason, including, I believe they hammered Sevilla in their last preseason game and, and look really strong. But do you, do you trust Arsenal to be on the level of Manchester City? They took their kind of 15th, 16th, and 17th best players, but I don't think that makes them title contenders. Um, the one that I could see, and we'll get to them in more detail, is Tottenham, just because yep. of Antonio Conte, because of the signings, because they have a strong squad. I think Tottenham are the one team that can be in that conversation. But look, this is this is City and Liverpool's league. It really is incredible, I think. And maybe I don't step back enough to appreciate how good Liverpool and Man City have been the last few years and how whenever they play, even Community Shield, even though it wasn't really a game for anything that matters, just how excited I get for those games. And in part because they're always exciting games. They're never uh, changing the way that they typically play just because they're playing a really good team. And so you end up seeing just really entertaining stuff whenever Liverpool plays City. And they really are better than the other teams in the league. And you know, the concern with Liverpool for me is just, you know, I think they can be hurt by a major injury to a significant player. We saw that with Van Dijk a couple seasons ago. You sort of hope that doesn't happen just because I want to see a title race. I don't want to see one team pull away. City obviously has more depth, um, and they've added Erling Holland, so they have a, a, a world-class number nine now. And, uh, and so that's just, I think, going to be really hard for any other team in the league. I think Spurs is the only team that, for me, has any sort of chance to win the league that isn't City or Liverpool. And I think that's just probably not going to happen. But I could at least envision a scenario in which Conte has Spurs in a position to be in a title race. And I, I can't really put that together for Chelsea or Arsenal even, or United definitely. Mm -hmm. So uh, to answer the question, can anyone other than City or Liverpool win the league? Maybe a 1% chance, I would say, for Spurs, but that's about it. It would take it would take a significant step back, wouldn't it? Because the level of Premier League champions since Man City and Liverpool started going on this run is between ninety and hundred points, and right. though, that's the level you have to be at. You have to win four out of every five games. You have to go on a run where you win twelve out of fourteen. Both of these teams have done that over the course of this period where they dominated the league. So the only way that it becomes a conversation is if there's enough vulnerabilities within them to see them take a step back from that level. And maybe with City, there are just because they've made some changes and we don't know if week in and week out they're going to be that machine. We don't know if Kevin De Bruyne gets hurt, for instance, if they have enough uh, to really generate that firepower. You mentioned injuries as a possibility. I also think if Joel Cancelo gets hurt, they're in a spot of bother, particularly at left back. Uh, now that it looks like Marco Cucurella is either going to go to Chelsea or not go to Chelsea, depending on which Twitter account you're reading. Uh, but 
it's it's interesting that maybe Man City could take a step back. Liverpool, I've done the regime change that we didn't think would be easy, but it looks like their front three is probably going to be Luis Diaz, Darwin Nunez, and Mo Salah. Um, is there any steps back there just by virtue of it's a new combination? They're not used to generating the 50 goals and 30 assists that, that front three has, has achieved for the last several seasons. Um, it, it would take steps back. It would take them getting to between, let's say, 85 and 90 points as opposed to 90 to 100 in order for any team to have a chance. Yeah, and the year that Leicester won it, I think they were in the low 80s, right? Um, yeah. You know, you'd have to have a season like that where it's not just one surprise team doing amazingly well and better than expected, but a bunch of other teams doing worse than expected that would create a situation like that. Question number two, which rebuild do you believe is closer to contention, Arsenal or Spurs? I kind of mentioned it there. I think it's Spurs. I think just because in some ways we do have to start thinking of Antonio Conte is a little bit of a Jose Mourinho-like figure just because his methods are so intense. He has so much of a club. He has so much of players that it has a very short cycle. I was listening to a podcast this morning, and they were talking about how in South Korea, <laughs> Tottenham Hotspur held a training session in which they made the team run 42 full-length sprints, and there <laughs> were players who were puking on the sidelines, and they did this in front of fans. So fans showed up to a ground to watch Tottenham start throwing up in front of them. So like that, like that's the kind of intensity that Antonio Conte brings to his side. He wears out his welcome quickly, but second season, I think when you look at how well they finished last year, you imagine by virtue of his system, his intensity, they will be more solid defensively. I still do think they need one or two more players that can make them more solid defensively. And then... For as much as we talk about what the system is, 3-5-2, it's about keeping clean sheets, he always seems to have one or two forwards in huge numbers scoring-wise, and they have those two players. If anything, they have four players in Kane, Son, Richarlison, and Kulisevsky who can hit big numbers from a goal-scoring standpoint. So I, I think they have everything that you'd want except for maybe one center back, whereas Arsenal, they've done a lot. They've done some really good business. They're right on the doorstep, but I just don't think they're at that level of Tottenham yet. I agree with you on that. Um, I also think Conti's on a completely different level than Mikel Arteta. I'm still not entirely sold on Arteta as a coach. Um, I'm looking forward, actually, to watching the new All or Nothing on Arsenal, uh, which just debuted and getting a sense. I'm told that there are some things that sort of defy what people expect about Mikel Arteta, so that should be an interesting one. But... I, I just have so much respect for what Conti's achieved, uh, including in the Premier League before, that uh, I think he's going to take Spurs even higher. It's going to be a bit of a challenge just because they have Champions League. He got them into Champions League, but there's going to be uh, more challenges to their depth this season, but I think they'll be able to handle them uh, as we move forward. Number three, is there any chance Erling Holland won't be phenomenal for Man City? There is a chance, and I know, and I don't think that's recency bias. I remember we talked about this when he first signed for Manchester City. It takes a second, and I think not only does it take a second for players who join Manchester City generally, but also this particular player is going to completely change the way that Manchester City play. Now, Pep Guardiola is a very smart man. The Manchester City outfield players are very smart. They can probably figure this out pretty quickly, but you don't have necessarily the link-up play option in the middle that you did when you know Foden, Sterling, 
Jesus, Grealish, whoever was playing that false nine position last year, it provided such an opportunity to help link the play that without that fulcrum that they've had for two years, maybe it's a complete redoing of your wiring. You're thinking about runs in behind, which hasn't really been a huge part of Manchester City's game. And now you're basically having a striker who's off the back shoulder of defender and playing the position in a very classic way. Now, Erling Haaland does also have technical quality. I don't want to undersell that, but he plays the position completely differently to anyone since Sergio Aguero in his prime. And what was that, three or four years ago? It's been a long time since Man City have played with a player like this. So if Erling Haaland doesn't get off to a flying start, I won't be surprised if, you know, he's basically been a goal a game at every level that he's been at. Youth level, uh, Austrian Bundesliga, German Bundesliga, full national team. He's basically a goal a game. If he's half a goal a game and hits for 17 to 20, I can't say I'll be that surprised because it's hard for any Premier League striker to hit those numbers. And I think it could take a second for him to adjust. I want to be clear in saying that I, I think Erling Holland will be an absolute star. At Man City, that I think is the much more likely scenario, just because he has so much around him that is built to set him up and score a ridiculous number of goals. And they have this phenomenal roster that they've spent a bazillion dollars on, and so that's the more likely scenario to me. But there is an element of my being a little skeptical. There's at least a little bit of question there uh, about Holland and. Part of it is wondering if a sort of phenomenal traditional number nine doesn't fit totally perfectly with Pep Guardiola's system. There's a reason that Pep Guardiola has used a false nine in so many of his seasons, including seasons in which they've won trophies. And I still have in the back of my mind Zlatan Ibrahimovic with Pep Guardiola at Barcelona, which was just a bad fit. And it's not because Ibrahimovic was a bad player. It's not because Gordiola is a bad coach. It just wasn't a good fit. And I, I know that Ibrahimovic and Holland are not exactly like for like, but there are some similarities there. And it's crazy actually how much Ibrahimovic ended up hating Pep Gordiola and just ripping him <laughs> in his book. And when I, when I interviewed Ibra, when his book came out, it was a wonderful opportunity because he ripped everybody in, in the book, him and Dan Hall. And so I asked him about Pep Guardiola and he just went off. And so there's an element of me wondering if that potentially could happen. It, it could be less of a perfect fit than, than we think with Erling Haaland. But I, I do think it's going to be a really fascinating thing to follow with City because there is a bit of an unknown there. And the other thing too, Grant, is... Big money signings are generally thought of as these are slam dunks, right? That it's going to work. If you look at Erling Haaland's pedigree coming up until now, how how could this fail? He's been a striker who scored everywhere. But I just looked up the top transfer fees in the history of the Premier League, and I want to go one through ten, most expensive to uh, Haaland is the twelfth most expensive according to you know various reports, and twelfth most expensive transfer in the history of the Premier League. So here are the biggest fees from one to eleven. Number one, Jack Grealish, hundred million going from Aston Villa to City, didn't or hasn't worked yet. We'll see. Second season could potentially still work out. Number two, Romelu Lukaku, Inter to Chelsea, didn't work. He goes back to Inter. Number three, Paul Pogba, Juventus to Man United, just left on a free. Number four, Harry Maguire, seventy-eight million, Leicester to Man, Man United, has not worked. Number five, Jadon Sancho, Dortmund to Manchester United, did not work in season one. 
to be determined in season two. Number six, Romelu Lukaku again. Everton to Manchester United. Didn't really work. Didn't get along with the manager by the end. Number seven, this is one that was a slam dunk hit. Virgil van Dijk, Southampton and Liverpool, reported $75 million worth every penny. Number eight, Kai Havertz, Bayer Leverkusen to Chelsea. Has not been the sensational splash signing that you might have expected. Number nine, Nicola Pepe, Lille to Arsenal. Hasn't worked. Number 10, Kepa from Athletic Club to Chelsea. And number 11, Kevin De Bruyne, smash success. So, of the 11 most expensive transfers, and number 12 is Holland. So of the 11 most expensive transfers in the history of the Premier League, you can say two of them worked. And so just because it's a big number, just because it's a player with a big pedigree, does not mean that it'll work. There's a chance that it can go really poorly through maybe necessarily no fault of Holland's, but uh, it's not necessarily a slam dunk just because you spend a bunch of money in the Premier League that it's going to work for you. It's so funny to me, too, how many of these busts are Man City and Chelsea when you read the list. And I've forgotten... I don't know, forgotten, but I, I mean, like the amount of money spent on Jack Grealish is just absolutely incredible considering how little of an impact he has had since he got to Man City. And I, I will point out that Holland would have been number one on that list if it if there hadn't been a buyout number that mm-hmm. he was at, that that was going to be what any club paid for him. And that was part of his contract with Dortmund. But Obviously, he made up for that in salary and whatever he's getting, which is probably absolutely off the hook. Um, but yeah, it, it's a great point. And it's it's fairly rare for the biggest transfer fees to actually hit. And you know, Van Dijk and De Bruyne are two exceptions, actually, to the rule, that list you just mentioned. Um, I want to go to the next question here. Can three Americans help Leeds United to respectability? Yeah, and, and so... I'm fascinated by this experiment because if you look at the results for Jesse Marsh, it's kind of mid-table Premier League. If you look at a points per game, I think it was something like 1.5 or 1.6 points per game. They needed extra because of their situation in the in the relegation fight. But he is going to implement a style that we have not really seen at the Premier League level. We've seen it a lot in the championship. You see a lot of these clubs turning to the full-out Red Bull pressing model, not worry about keeping possession. It's about forward and through balls and all that stuff. And it's worked pretty well. But at the Premier League level, in some ways, Jesse Marsh is not only you know an American who's trying to blaze a trail. He's in some ways trying to blaze a trail for a lot of coaches who play a very particular way that's very inherent to German football. And so I just don't know if... Leeds will have the wherewithal, particularly defensively defensively in transition, to keep games normal. Because a lot of games that they played last year were pretty crazy. So can you week in, week out, execute this style, suffocate opponents? And also, I think sometimes this system tries to prey upon a lot of players that don't have technical quality. You press them out of possession because they can't play out from the back. And I'm not sure that in the Premier League you're going to come across too many defenses where they don't have either the system or the quality to play out from the back. And so I'm just really fascinated by the tactic by the tactics of it. Brendan Aronson had a very good preseason. Seems like Tyler Adams is fitting in well as well. That those guys I think are going to be starting a ton of games for Leeds United. But the question is is are they a team that's going to be fighting in the relegation scrap, or can they put together enough wins, seem strong enough to week in, week out, perform well? And what happens if they take 
two points in their first four games and they get off to a poor start and the fans who already I've been in the tank for Bielsa as they should uh, get there's some unrest there. Do, do Leeds have the fortitude within the club to pursue this strategy to its, log- its logical conclusion? Yeah, I, I think this is a fascinating team to watch and not just because it's Americans, though that certainly adds to it. This is basically Team America now in the Premier League with Jesse Marsh coaching the team. You've got Brendan Aronson, you've got Tyler Adams having huge roles the ownership, uh, the 49ers have a, a big influence. I think it's only going to increase as time goes on here with this team. Uh, I do think there's a tremendous amount of variation in potential outcomes for this Leeds team because I could see them being in another relegation battle. I could also see them being in the upper half of the league. Uh, I think they're potentially good enough to be in that position. And one thing that Marsh did instill, even though he only had 12 games at the end of last season to keep them up, they did defend better. They didn't concede nearly as many goals. It had gotten completely out of control with how many goals Bielsa's Leeds team was conceding. And the man marking had just, the players, it was not sustainable. And it, it got really bad. And I will say this, I'm going to save a bunch for my written story on Leeds, but just visiting there and talking to people at the club, um, they they gave credit to Bielsa for changing the culture and getting them up to the Premier League. But they very few people inside that club felt like it was sustainable what was happening under Bielsa. And so I think there was a sense of relief when they finally made the switch. Now, I know there's a lot of Leeds fans who treat Bielsa like a god. I think it's a little bit not... Twitter's not a perfect reflection of real life. And so you you see a lot of these fans on Twitter, and that's not exactly the way it is, I think, in reality. But... Uh, this is just going to be a fascinating situation just because Leeds, there's basically one team in Leeds uh, that has a huge following. And Leeds is, a, as I'm learning geographically, uh, has more population than I realized. Um, and so rightly or wrongly, I think one of the questions is going to be, is this going to be a referendum on Americans in the Premier League? And I think to some extent it might. Agreed. And that is a scary proposition for Americans because uh, I think, look, there's a lot of great coaches coming through MLS right now. American coaches will have their respectability on the world stage, whether now or in 10 years' time. It's not quite as dire as it might seem at times when you know you see him being made fun of for his accent or things that he says in press conferences. It's, it's all stupidity that will eventually fade away, but there are still some fans in England, not just of Leeds, that want Jesse Marsh to fail. That, you know, he's a he's a big personality. He talks like someone who, you know, was graduated from Harvard Business School at times. Like he's got like this very uh, erudite way of explaining everything. He talks, I think, a lot more honestly than most Premier League managers do. And I think sometimes wants to prove himself. I think you you hear him will say things who talks about game models and tactics and things like that. Almost say, "Hey, like I I know I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about." And 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 will give that extra little bit of insight. I think you mentioned that lack of sustainability. Um it, part of that was a very small squad that Bielsa liked to keep. They did make seven signings to pair with uh Rafinha and Calvin Phillips going out. Uh they basically took the uh s- sales of Rafinha to Barcelona, Calvin Phillips to Manchester City and spent them on seven players to help build out a stronger squad. So we'll see how much those players can make an impact. Patrick Bamford being healthy should help a lot, but it's it can feel at times like every time Jesse Marsh steps out on the technical area, and in some respects when Aronson and Adams step onto the pitch that they're playing for American respectability in the Premier League. And 
there are varying conversations about whether or not that matters to uh, American pundits, to American fans, to the Amer- American journalists, to Americans in general. Um, I still, I still kind of think it matters. I still think it's a big deal, and I really hope that Jesse Marsh succeeds. Speaking of Americans, Christian Pulisic questions about him at Chelsea. Is Pulisic losing his place at Chelsea? Should he move? So I think if you look at the starting lineup for Chelsea this season, he will probably be the fourth or the fifth forward. So probably right now, your three starting forwards are Mason Mount, Raheem Sterling, Kai Havertz. I think Havertz has been consistent enough to probably earn that place. If there's a position position that would be in doubt, it would be that place. Now, because of the World Cup in the middle of the season, you will have a Chelsea team probably rotating a bit more. Champions League, domestic cups. Christian Pulisic will play, but he enters this year still not having really proved himself. And I think if I kept scrolling down on most expensive transfer fees on Premier League history, I would have gotten to Pulisic. And if we said at the end of that, how do you rate this transfer? If we weren't Americans, we'd probably say, it's been kind of teetering on just meh to probably not a success so far. They did win the Champions League and you know you you, you win that title, but it's, it's one of those things where I just don't know, for, for a Pulisic standpoint, after the World Cup, do you want to stick around at Chelsea? Has the Chelsea thing worked? Do you take a little bit of a step down so you can play every week? Um, I, I'm really fascinated with the next step in Pulisic's career because it was all about getting to the World Cup, being healthy at the World Cup, which is certainly a huge thing for Americans in the Premier League this season. But I, I don't know uh, if this has been a success at Chelsea and if he should continue there. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about with uh, when you look at Pulisic's time at Chelsea. He's had moments, obviously, but uh, so I wouldn't call it a disaster. But at the same time, he has never really been a longtime regular starter, lots of injuries. And when you look about when you look at moving, it's it would be for less money than he came to Chelsea for, might have to take a pay cut. And, you know, do you really want to do that? And then you've got the added sort of wrinkle that you have an American who owns the club now, Todd Bowley. And is is that going to impact things? Does Todd Bowley not want to to sell the the most prominent American player. So I think there's a lot potentially happening there. And in the end, you just want to see Pulisic get a chance to be on the field, get some consistency, not get injured, and see where it can go from there. Because he's certainly capable of being an influential player. We just haven't seen it be that way on a consistent basis. Uh, next question. How good will Man United be and should they keep Cristiano Ronaldo? So on the Ronaldo question, I don't think they want to, but they might have to. And this is a really interesting inflection point in his career because he still thinks of himself as a player where if he goes to a Champions League team, they can go win the Champions League. He wants to go win another European trophy. But I don't know, this transfer window is kind of suggesting that all of the clubs that are at that level say, you're wrong, Cristiano. And it's interesting that he could never find that spot that he can see out the twilight of his major European career. And I think he's not ready for the MLS stage of his career, but European football is ready for the MLS stage of his career. And so I guess after the World Cup, maybe, you know, he can acknowledge that, all right, it's time for me to go. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the Champions League with Manchester United. If I'm going to be stuck here, I guess it might be time for the next stage of my career. But, you know, Messi was able to to stick it at Paris Saint-Germain, but for whatever reason, Cristiano Ronaldo, and he can play a role. 
Like he can be a super sub center forward that can give can provide a ton of goals, but I just don't think he's ready to accept being that player for another team or really accept what that salary would be for another team. So I don't think they should keep him. As for Manchester United, they have to commit to a long-term rebuild. I don't think they have the stomach for it. I think they've built a squad for six different managers, and I still think there are problems at the club. So you might like the Ten Hag idea. They've certainly, in the transfer window, have tried to build towards the Ten Hag idea by basically just picking up players that he used to coach or that he has familiarity with and can play his system. But I don't think there's enough either currently at the club or that they'll commit strongly enough to really get his project over the line. And I think he's going to have down periods. And eventually, at some point, the Manchester United fans this season will be calling for him to go just because... That's just the, that's been the cycle of Manchester United in recent times. I just don't think that they're going to be committed to any kind of long term rebuild because I don't think results are going to be good enough. That is so grim, man. I I, <laughs> I I I think it's certainly possible that could happen. I I would like to think that Eric Ten Hag will get a little bit of time and not be de- you know, have it demanded of him that they're you know, in contention to win the league or, or like, you know, for him, I think if you can get top four this season, even fourth, that should be viewed as, okay, we're on the path in terms of Ronaldo. I think they should find a way to get rid of him. Um, I, and I give credit to the, the champions league teams in Europe right now that are kind of saying, we don't know if we want Ronaldo. We, we see what's happened at Juventus where, he scored a lot of goals, but probably was a net negative for the team. We've seen what's happened with Ronaldo at Man United, where he scored goals, but was probably a net negative for the team. Why do we want that on our team uh, if we're in Champions League this season? And your point is, I think, spot on that it's it's MLS time for, for Cristiano Ronaldo. He just doesn't want to accept that. We'll see if he will be willing to accept that before too long. Next one. Why are more Americans moving to the Premier League lately? We've seen Chris Richards move from Germany to Crystal Palace. We've seen Tyler Adams from Germany to Leeds. Brendan Aronson from de facto Germany, Austria to Leeds. Jesse Marsh even. Um, Why are we seeing more Americans now in England again? Forgot Gaga Salamina as well, who's going from uh, Chicago Fire to Chelsea uh, come January. I don't know. Is it just because the American player has gotten better over time or has the American player gotten enough in terms of credibility? If you look at the Polisics and the McKennies uh, going to big clubs, Gio Reyna, Dortmund as well has emerged, that now there's that level that you hit where, all right, we can trust Americans. We know that they can play at our level. Um, I, I'm, I'm really interested by this because I do think, you know, the Premier League is certainly from like a marketing standpoint, from a brand standpoint, if you're an American player, that's where you will get the most exposure for as much as, you know, the Bundesliga has grown. There's just nothing like, you know, even, you know, Chris Richards at Crystal Palace will probably get more attention than, you know, maybe even Gio Reyna at Dortmund. I know that sounds absurd, but the Premier League is just that big of a league in this country. So you, you can understand why, but I think it's a very important time for American players to pick the right clubs. And I also understand why, particularly for young ones, the German league has always been more preferred because they give more chances to young players. So Chris Richards goes to Germany, gets two years at Hoffenheim, and now with major European league experience, he can go to Crystal Palace and have a go there. But uh, I think it's just it's the, it's the rising of the level of the, Europe, of, of the American player, and European leagues now respect MLS, now respect Americans as being able to fit within their league. I, I think there's a couple of things here, and you've hit on them, but like 
Gagas Lonina from Chicago to Chelsea, not going to the Bundesliga in between is sort of a new thing, I think, that reflects American players maybe being valued a bit more. Now, all of these young Americans who went to Germany, I think were partly following in the footsteps of Christian Pulisic and seeing that there was a pathway, you could get playing time as a young player. And I think that really set things in motion for several of this generation of young, good Americans to go to Germany first and establish themselves and then make the move to England. And we're now in that phase of going to England, which can pay higher salaries than the Bundesliga. And this is where a lot of these guys wanted to be in the first place. But it it is fascinating how that process works. I do think it's not just an American thing. I think young players in general get more playing time, more playing opportunities in Germany. And you see that with uh, even a Jaden Sancho, right, Uh, who who left England to get playing time, become a star at Dortmund, and then come back to the Premier League. So I like it. Uh, And I know the players like it, just talking to Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson last week about how happy they were that they were living in an English-speaking country. (laughs) (laughs) That they were making the adjustment to driving on the left side of the road. I will say that. Um, (laughs) Next question. Why does NBC have two paywalls to watch the Premier League when the three other major European leagues have only one paywall in the U.S.? Can I can I uh, offer a kind word for NBC here? Um, and I know I know it's very easy to blame the media company. However, I do think this is also somewhat the Premier League's fault um, because they could have made the decision to go to an all streaming alternative when they sold their rights for six years, and I think they still want the exposure of being on over the air television and even pay television. The USA Network is actually a bigger platform than NBC Sports Network was because there are more people who watch USA for their reruns of Chicago Fire uh, than watch, uh, you know, whatever rally racing was on in the afternoon on NBC when they were in Premier League games. So yeah, it's a bigger platform. And so I think it's the desire for the Premier League to still be in front of eyeballs and not just basically say we have all of the fans that we've ever we're ever going to make with this product which is essentially the decision you somewhat make when you go to streaming i'll be curious you know if you know paramount plus or if amazon ever gets in a big way or apple with mls ever grows the fan base but it feels like streaming is the decision you make when we have our fan base and we just want to capitalize on it and we can't do it on pay tv because we can't sell enough spots we have to sell subscriptions and so I think it's partially the Premier League's desire to have more exposure. And so they're on a pay TV channel because it gives them exposure. So I will give NBC the benefit of the doubt there. I do. I would like to see a world in which the Peacock subscription could get you every game. We're unfortunately not yet in that world. That's the only thing I want, man, because I, I like the idea of giving exposure. We're seeing new fans created all the time for this sport in the United States. But I just want the option to be able to pay one fee for Peacock and have every Premier League game watchable for me. And I have to pay multiple fees to see the Premier League on different, on multiple platforms. And I don't think that's asking too much. I would actually pay a decent amount of money, even Uh, not a crazy amount, but a decent amount to be able to watch every Premier League game. NBC doesn't offer that other places do. I'm kind of annoyed, but I'll live with it. Next question. Who will be the surprise team of the season? It's, Actually, really tough to answer this question because I feel like I have a pretty good feel for where all of these teams are. 
So I'll, I'll go through a few candidates. One would be West Ham, just because they signed another striker finally to pair with Mikel Antonio, and maybe they have a little bit more depth, and maybe they can mount a more serious challenge for the Champions League, which I think right now they're kind of penciled in for a lot of people in seventh. You know what my answer is going to be? And I know surprise connotes like getting into the top half of the table. My answer is going to be Fulham. I think Fulham <laughs> are going to not get relegated, and that will constitute a surprise. I think they'll finish maybe somewhere around 15th or 16th. I know that sounds like a very low bar for a surprise, but <laughs> I think a lot of people will enter this season, given their recent history, just thinking Fulham are going to go. Um, they definitely need more center backs. I know that we love Americans on this pod, but Tim Ream cannot be your starting center back in the Premier League. They need they need a, a center back signing or two, but I think that Fulham are not going to be relegated. That's actually, I think, a great choice because you're right. Everyone views Fulham as this yo-yo team that every time they get up to the Premier League, they immediately go back down. And so if they do stay up, that would be a significant surprise. I am going to just go full flag-waving American here and say the surprise team of the season will be Leeds United. And partly that's connected to what I was talking about earlier in the variability of possibilities for Leeds United this season, which I think could be anywhere from eighth or ninth place on the edge of Europe, all the way down to being in the relegation battle again. And I think if that's possible that they could finish eighth or ninth, that that would be a gigantic surprise. And I feel good about having visited now and seeing what kind of vibe there is around this team, inside the team, around Leeds, and some of the results they've gotten in the preseason. That might be taking a bit of a leap, but I I think it could happen. I would be so surprised, Grant, if American, if American, I should say, uh, Leeds United finished in the top half. If Leeds finish in the top half, I will show up at the next time we ever meet up. I don't know where that will be in head-to-toe American paraphernalia. I'll wear a flag shirt, flag shorts, a flag bandana around my head, flag style. Like, I will look like Uncle Sam. I will look like... Uh, a member of the American Outlaws, the time I see you after Leeds finish in the top half, I would be that surprised if they did. We'll save this clip. How about that? <laughs> Last question. Who are your three teams to go down and be relegated? So I'm going to go for Nottingham Forest uh, just because I think they've signed too many players. I know that's ridiculous to say, but that's that's too many players. I think they've signed 12, 12 or something like that. There's kind of like, uh, like for me, the right balance is five for a new team to come up. Bournemouth have signed two. Nottingham Forest have signed 12. That's too many. So Forest and Bournemouth will go down. And my surprise pick to get relegated will be Wolverhampton Wanderers. If you look at Ooh. their advanced stats last season, they did not have a good season. And they were on the beach for the last 10 games of the season and were not really terribly competitive. They don't have a healthy center forward entering the season. I think Wolves are going to go down. Very interesting. I'm with you on Nottingham Forest and Bournemouth. And I'm also with you on Fulham staying up, which may come back to haunt me. But my third team is Brentford to Mm. go down. This was a team that got a real boost from Christian Eriksen, but otherwise really kind of struggled in the latter half uh, of the season. And I think Brentford is looking at heading back down to the championship. How will we feel about these predictions in, in even a matter of like six weeks, do you think? Nottingham Forest are going to win 2-0 on the opening day, I'm sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
This was a blast. Thanks so much, Chris. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. Mm-hmm.